0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, my name is Dr. Wendy, and here at the Semel Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA, we're on a mission to change the culture of health and make the healthy choice the easy choice. Starting in our own backyard, We're implementing evidence-based changes right here on campus. Welcome to our Center's podcast, Live Well. Join us as we interview leading experts and discover new perspectives on health and well-being. Each episode, we will bring to you scientists and world-class operators who will share with you the never-before-broadcasted tips to live a more healthful and wholesome life for yourself, community, and ultimately, our planet. What are the origins of hearing, or what is the evolutionary benefit of music, and why do we get chills when we listen to certain songs? Today, we will talk to UCLA neuropsychologist expert Dr. Bob Builder about the neuroscience behind music and its benefit for our health and wellness. Bob is the Chief of Neuropsychology at UCLA's Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior and Director of the Tenenbaum Center for the Biology of Creativity. Do we have your interest now? You might even be interested in his research, which is focused on the links between brain and behavior, using tools spanning genetics, neuroimaging, cognitive, and other assessments of human behavior. I think my brain just did a little gymnastics. Bob has been studying the brain basis of creativity across species and identifying brain and behavioral traits associated with exceptional, or big C, creativity, in humans, which we will discuss today. He is particularly interested in studying dimensions of brain function to help eliminate artificial boundaries between mental illness, between health and disease, and between the brain mechanisms involved in exceptional and everyday creativity. He also directs the MindWell pod, Within the Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA to concentrate on how we can support resilience, well being, and creative achievement at UCLA and beyond. Please join us in today's conversation. Dr. Builder will discuss the relationships between music and the brain. What is happening in our brain when we listen to music? Can music help with addiction? What are the differences in our brains between highly creative individuals, protégés, and the regular person? And what does Herbie Hancock have to do with all of this? Thank you so much for being here, Bob. I mean, I'm so excited to hear your answers for these questions. I've been putting together with the UCLA students, staff, and faculty, and this is our UCLA Semel Healthy Campus Initiative podcast series, and we're focusing on healthy mind and healthy body. And who's better to talk about that but you, Dr. Bob Bilder? <laughs> you know, you're a neuroscientist, you're a musician, you research creativity, and I think Herbie Hancock's going to be uh, entering into this conversation as well. If
0: Herbie's doing anything, you got to listen to
1: it. Yeah, he's involved. Right it's on. Well, let's get to Herbie then right away. He was a guest lecturer at this presentation at the music school here at UCLA, and the professor fainted, or nearly fainted, on stage. And I was called into action, with had to put my physician hat on, and I rushed up and took care of him. And as the ambulance left, Herbie and I had a conversation, and he learned a little bit about the Healthy Campus Initiative. And so a little while later he approached me and asked me if I knew anybody that could speak to the neuroscience of music and its relationship to um, health and well-being as well. And so, of course, you came immediately to my mind. And the reason I didn't realize was even more apparent once you explained to me that not only do you study creativity in your day job, you also, in your weekends, you have a... A dad band. Tell me what a dad band is. It's the first time I've heard that phrase point. (laughs) there were a
0: bunch of guys. We got together. Um, We were all dads at the UCLA lab school. We were lucky enough to have our kids go to the UCLA lab school, which is a fantastic place. And sitting around at some school event, we started talking about music, and we realized that at least three of us all shared an interest in one particular kind of music, which was music from pretty much the 70s, and has been referred to as progressive jazz, or sophisto-funk. And among the artists that each one of us had followed, Herbie Hancock was the main man I mean, some of his albums from that period, including the Headhunters album and Thrust, I and mean, this was like our standard go-to stuff. So we as dads got together and tried to play some of these songs, which were way over our head. Another friend of mine who used to be a drummer in our band in high school, I sent him our playlist. And he said, said, no sane musician would attempt to play that playlist. (laughs) So we're not sane musicians, we're just dads. So it's fine, we have a good time.
1: That's why you keep the the title Dad's Band, just to bring everyone down to reality. That's
0: right. But Herbie, if you ever hear this, we need a keyboard player.
1: First of all, you must have cleared the decks from your schedule because it's so packed. Well,
0: I'm so excited how many times does somebody call me up and say, can you come and give a lecture to Herbie Hancock's class? this is crazy.
1: (laughs) And not only was it for Herbie, it was for his elite musicians who were recruited from all over the world studying the monk jazz program in jazz, right? It's only one of two in the whole country.
0: That's really an amazing thing to to try to talk to that group about music was also very intimidating. And you mentioned that another professor who was giving a lecture fainted. Well, I think I was probably close to fainting a couple of times because oh my God, you know, to talk about music to these musicians is very difficult and my familiarity with it is, you know, only in passing I'm trying to understand, you know, how the brain could produce music, come to enjoy music and all that kind of good stuff.
1: Do you tell the listeners what you taught me, which was so so sort of revealing about the neuroscience of music and the origins of music in the brain, like the
0: relationship.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the one of the really fascinating
0: things that I learned in trying to understand the neuroscience of music is how hearing came to be in the first place. If you think back through evolutionary time and back to single celled organisms, well, they don't have any ears, obviously. But uh, you know, those even those simplest of animals, ones that really had just what one cell and maybe a tail that could help them wiggle and move in the water to where the light was, so they could get more food and nutrition. Even those animals had some kind of sensory function, so they would sense what's on the outside of the cell, and it would help to drive their little tail.
1: They could sense vibration? or Well, they
0: were more sensitive to light oh, and chemical uh-huh. environments. Uh-huh. But over time, and as we developed into multicellular organisms, then sensitivity to vibrations became important. Now, first, that was just embedded in the body of the animal. And right now, all of us can experience sound if you take a tuning fork right. and, and hit it and then put it against your skin, you can feel the vibrations.
1: That's right. Well, that's what doctors do. We learn to do that on your head to see if you can sense the vibration on either side. That's right. Yeah. I guess you
0: guys call that bone conduction exactly. versus a conduction through the air. Yeah. But then over time, what happened is um, animals began to develop these very sensitive membranes in parts of their skin surface or their their body surface that were much more sensitive to vibrations that are conducted through the air, these sound vibrations. And then those ultimately evolved from being just little thin membranes on usually the sides of the head into real ears, that help to amplify the volume. And then in humans, there's a special apparatus that helps to segregate the high frequency sounds from the low frequency sounds. And a lot of brain has been dedicated to unpacking the auditory signals and the vibrations that come into our ears uh, and interpreting that in the brain and classifying um, different vibrations as different notes, different frequencies, picking words out and identifying meaning all these functions the brain has has evolved to enable us to process. Then there's some other really interesting things that have to do with the possible impact of music and other rhythmic sounds on group cohesion and social functioning. So really fascinating um, theories have evolved. They're very hard to test because we can't go back in history, but it's been hypothesized that there might be something about having shared rhythms that enabled people in early times in, in human evolution to work together to hunt, synchronizing their steps in ways that didn't alert other animals in the environment that they were coming, mm. so they could successfully they hunt. They were quieter. They were quieter and coordinated. Uh-huh. Uh, and then there may be other cool. aspects of shared experience that helped to bond social units so one of the things about humans and certain other species is that they tend to hang together um, in social structures. And, that and that.
1: that's what you're describing as the evolutionary basis of music is that it was a connector.
0: That's right. That is one of the ideas is that it helped us to share experiences and bond together because when you are listening to music you are sharing a yeah. common experience and are brought together uh, by the rhythmic and melodic structures.
1: Yeah, so you, I know in that talk that you gave, you talked about the four F's in the limbic system. Right. And can you elaborate on that? Sure.
0: It comes right back to what we were talking about in terms of evolutionary significance. You know, as the brain evolved from its most primitive levels up to the fancy brain that we have now as humans, but this the limbic system has been described as mediating, uh, supporting the four F's uh, functioning in humans, um, which we can identify as feeding, fighting, fleeing and reproductive behavior so those, those are very key <laughs> f's that we need to identify um, and that
1: gets a big laugh usually when i see you <laughs> speaking to the students undergrads
0: it was one way people remember this stuff i right? know so, actually
1: i remember the four apps more than anything else about the brain there you, go. <laughs> like
0: there you go and it's clear how each one of those directly relates to our ability to survive as a yeah. species if you're missing any one of those Then you're likely not going to survive as well as Uh the other animals.
1: I remember you this limbic system in the 4Fs, getting back to sort of the more primitive area, was also an area that lights up with music. Are there other sort of feedback loops that go on that are in that primitive?
0: Yes, I think that that first we want to recognize that you know when we experience music, it's hitting all parts of our brain. Uh Some aspects of musical expression could only be interpreted by the highest levels of our brain, where they carry certain nuanced meanings Mm -hmm. that, in the same way that language communicates certain meanings, music can also carry certain meanings. And indeed, some of the regions of the brain that are language processing zones also can be engaged by music. And, and some music, of course, is very representational or has a, a very sophisticated layers of meaning that go beyond its emotional impact. Mm-hmm. But all that being said, I think that one of the things that we love about music is that it does hit also these more core and limbic of brain functions, and it connects in some ways more directly with some of these emotional centers, and I think that's you know a fascinating aspect of, of music appreciation. I mean, a great example is the experience of chills when we're right. you know hearing certain musical expression, and it seems like that kind of experience, which has been referred to by some people as a skin orgasm, mm. um, but seems to be found when there's a certain surprisal uh, to the music. Following a period of expectation. Hmm. So I think that um, if you can think to those uh, elements of music that may have given you chills, often it's the result of you following the thread of the music through some kind of expectancy, and then suddenly the expectation is either satisfied or there's a a complete surprise. Hmm. Just an example would be. a a chord progression that deviates from what you expect, but then it resolves Hmm. to a harmony or Hmm. a melodic element that you already had implanted in your expectations. And this kind of a resolution um, seems to result in this big shift and this experience of of chills.
1: And that's considered to be more in their primitive brain, probably that response.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, while a lot of the setup for that and how you expect things comes from higher brain centers, the bottom line of many of these kinds of experiences probably extend from our reward system, which is baked in at a pretty primitive level in our brain, um, in the brainstem and limbic levels. So when we experience something that's better than what we expected, we get a positive surge uh-huh. of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. And then if something is not as good as what we expected, then there's actually a decrease in that same signal. Uh-huh. So this has been referred to as prediction error, or Our brains are constantly predicting what is going to happen next. We have expectations all the time. So if what actually happens is better than what we expected, then we get this positive prediction Uh error. You get this surge of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. And then through a whole bunch of other connections, that increases the likelihood that you're going to do again whatever it was you were doing when you had that surge. Uh In contrast let's imagine that you're expecting something good to happen and nothing good happens or something bad happens. Then the brainstem is going to quiet down, not send any dopamine up to the accumbens, and then you're going to become less likely to repeat the same um, actions that led to that problem. So this is how learning actually takes place. How we develop habits is usually by having through that process. some reinforcement right. through reward that leads me to this question. The four
1: Fs, we don't have to be, you know, really aspiring to meet any of those to any major extent these days, at least in, in our current um, setting. What Would it be too much of a reach to say that we could make a list of what you're describing as the positive reinforcement, like music would be one, I would imagine, And could there be other things that you could say, okay, if I'm conscious of these habits that do give me that positive feeling, that are positive for my life, that you could then enhance that and then look at the areas that are negative and sort of remove those? Is that a methodology that people can utilize based on your neuroscience uh, description of the brain? I think it is. I think that's one of
0: the real bases of modern psychotherapies, to do pretty much exactly this, to help people identify what are the things that are important and valuable to them, uh, and then helping them align their actions uh, with those high-level values and goals. Mm. And in that way, if People can begin to select their actions based on what is valuable to them. Then they're going to find that, oh, it's going to be more satisfying because it's actually connected to things that are very valuable. And very physical. That's, and, and potentially very physical. Uh-huh. It can help to overcome distractions or overcome bad habits, things that we don't want to do that might be suggested to us, like eating that extra bowl of ice cream. So it could um,
1: act as a deterrent for that, because you could Im- replace that extra bowl of ice cream if you're bored or something with listening to music. Is that what you're that, that suggesting? Would, e- exactly,
0: yeah. And in fact, that, that replacement is a critical thing. You know, punishment doesn't work. Right. Punishment only leads to the delay and uh-huh. the behavior occurring again. Or feeling yeah. like you're deprived. That's right. I think the one thing that is important that just struck me while we're talking is that we don't want to ignore our limbic systems. You know, we could use our frontal lobes, the highest levels of development of the neocortex, to try to dampen and shut down that limbic system. But I think that would lead to all kinds of problems. So I think what we want to do is have a good balance and have
1: our... Wait, what's the problem if you ignore your limbic system? Oh, because then it will
0: will express itself in one way or another. It will end up controlling the rest of the body in unusual ways, or it'll bleed out into the other parts of the brain and and mess up the higher-level functions. So I think that in like an I mean if you
1: don't satisfy the fighting, fleeing, feeding and reproduction.
0: That's right. That's right. The dynamic balance has to be maintained so that um, you know the limbic system or music. is still music's
1: also. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. That's
0: if if um, you know various forms of expression can connect to the limbic system and enable it to be expressed uh-huh. uh, if the what uh, else experiences lights of lust up there? are converted into uh, an expressed through of love. love. Right. then that may provide a good avenue right. for expression. But if, if there aren't love options and the lust is repressed, then it could lead to explosions of lusty behavior and inappropriate contexts. Yeah, which that's, you
1: see sometimes when people are completely deprived of anything, right? That's right. That's yeah. Right. So I just worry if Well, feeding, to, you, you know, have to feed.
0: That's right, and you have to feed. But some people um, control their feeding too much. Right. We're familiar one of the deadliest diseases is anorexia and right. nervosa. That leads some people to, you know, over-control those limbic right. centers in ways that are you know dangerous.
1: Well fighting and fleeing, how can you satisfy those?
0: Yeah. A play. That's an interesting thing. Some ah. people would suggest that play is something that has evolved in connection to fighting and fleeing. You ever see dogs play?
1: Oh sure, yeah. yeah. So sometimes it scares me, but you're it's, right, it's not really fighting, it's playing. It's it's but it looks like fighting. It. Yeah.
0: And a lot of chasing. Yeah. And who's chasing whom? So tag's a is great Perfect example. That's ah, right. Yeah. So huh. you know, I think that is a neat re-expression and highlights the value of play because, yeah, we don't have opportunities to fight and flee in exactly the ways we used to. What
1: else lights up there besides the four F's and the music?
0: There whole lots of other centers in the brain that are specialized for what we call semantic processing or extracting meanings out of these elements. So language is a perfect example. Language is a kind of music that involves sequentially organized in time changes in the frequency of sound. Mm. Now, our brains, human brains, have developed an incredible lot of brain territory dedicated to this processing of language so that we can detect the differences between very, very subtle sound differences. So, for example, if I say the words uh, bin and pin, can, does it sound like the same word repeated twice or two different words?
1: Two different words.
0: Okay. Now, it's possible to distinguish those because you can tell the difference in what's really occurring just in like the first 50 milliseconds uh-huh. of that utterance, b versus puh. Uh-huh. And it, the only difference is b has a, a gentle closing of the lips where puh, it has a plosive or rapid separation of the lips with the sound and letting the air escape in that way. But this is a very subtle difference, yet you can resolve it with 100% accuracy. And so that's a real tribute to how much the part of the brain, usually in the left temporal lobe, gets overdeveloped. Sometimes the territory there can be seven times larger than the comparable brain region on the right hemisphere, um, dedicated to this processing of, of sounds for speech. Now, in music, we also extract meaning, from the sequentially organized, in time, fluctuations in the frequencies of the sound. But it follows different rules. So we actually can see that as people get more training in music, they transfer some of the processing capacities from the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere as they learn the rules that are associated with musical processing. So, if you have novices attend to certain musical uh, tasks, they will show this right hemisphere preference and it will be more widespread in its uh, brain activations, whereas a skilled musician will analyze it immediately and classify it in hmm. these left hemisphere modules, which is more like language.
1: Which is so cool about the brain, isn't it? That we now are knowing that it's so elastic and you can do these connections even at a late age. By learning new languages, right, and different That's sports,
0: right. or, and, and playing instruments, and is playing instruments, to be good for your brain as
1: yeah, well. picking up uh, a new instrument or mm-hmm. learning a new song on an instrument, and that really touches on what we were talking about earlier about how the brain is much more um, complex than this description of all the different sort of anatomic areas that we've been spending a lot of time on. That there's a lot of connectivity between back and forth, up and down, sideways. Mm -hmm. And you talked about language, and I remember in the talk that you gave with Herbie that music came before language. Can you elaborate on that?
0: Yeah, so I think that there's not really enough information about exactly what the time frames were for developing language and music, but um, it looks like there were certain shared rhythmic patterns that occurred in social groups before language even developed. Now, whether you know, is that really music? Certainly it's not like uh watermelon man, but it gives us a, you know, a broad definition of music in that way. Right. Um, but yeah, probably those shared soundscapes were important to humans even before uh, formal language was developed. And we can also identify that those are simpler than some aspects of language. Mm-hmm. However, there are probably other aspects of language that were uh, developed very early. If I say, how. Ah! then you know that I'm in distress, right? Yes, even no matter what word you say. That's right, and other species are capable of these kinds of vocalization. Uh Another interesting vocalization, probably also very primitive, is the infant cry.
1: Uh Um,
0: And then there's a key part of the limbic system that's known as the cingulate gyrus that is particularly sensitive to these infant separation Uh cries, and is particularly well developed in mothers oh um, yeah and if that territory is damaged then um, mothers will stop showing a sensitivity to infant cries and neglect their offspring huh and that of course has you know bad Outcomes. evolutionary consequences oh, yeah um, but we see variations on that all the time yeah
1: in mostly developed countries but now developing countries but now developed countries a, a form of what's called kangaroo care where uh, it was developed in Colombia, the country, where they didn't have enough incubators for preemies and newborns that needed to be in incubators, so mm-hmm. they would put them skin-to-skin to, skin to the moms mm-hmm. and wrap them around, and they, moms would act like Incubators. They would if the child's temperature dropped, Their temperature would rise and maintain the temperature of the these preemies. Yeah. Except for drug addicts, they didn't have that kind of communication, emotional communication, to be able to incubate their babies. Yeah. So it might sure. be explained through some of the potential damage or interruptions of this limbic system. In it's possible anyway. They they found that that was a key difference between mothers who were more in tune with their babies and mothers who were disconnected mostly because of habits that were addicting to, you know, bad habits. Yeah. 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 And I think that, you know, it's, I want to get back one more time to this question because I feel that these negative behaviors that are routinely cited as ways to feed the reward system, right? Like drugs, nicotine, but also gaming, the, smartphone is now looking to be quite addicting, gambling. What do you think can be beneficial to make a list? I mean, what other things besides music or other things that you might observe yourself that help feel positive for your reward system, what do you know that lights up in the limbic system that would be something to give people ideas about that they could try?
0: Right, right. Well, so I think that, you know, when we see all of these kinds of problems emerging. It usually comes from some root cause, and some of the root causes that we know are relevant are anxiety and the lack of social connection and support, Um, and that those two features can be worked on, usually in psychotherapy, and also through other positive psychology activities, and just focusing on relationship building and building the other tools that support resilience. So I think that's something that, you know, as part of our work in the Healthy Campus Initiative, we've been trying to work on identifying first how to make sure that people don't feel stigma associated with problems like anxiety that can lead to uh, seeking out other ways to get reinforced, like drugs or alcohol. You know, alcohol was the first drug ever identified, and it does a great job of going and dampening certain aspects of this anxiety system uh, in the brain. Which some. is where?
1: Where is that anxiety system?
0: Yeah, so interestingly, there's a, this is a great additional cocktail party lingo, um, what's called the septohippocampal system. There's a sort of a loop that's part of the limbic system that goes from the septal nuclei and, and projects to the human hippocampus, and in that hippocampus really seems to be some of the key brain uh, systems that help to stop ongoing behavior, in a sort of a freezing reaction and help us be alert to things in the environment that might be threatening. So, the cause of anxiety is often felt to be an increased sensitivity of that system so that mm. it may fire under relatively not threatening circumstances, mm. maybe hypertune, and thus we end up feeling threatened even when we're not really being threatened mm-hmm. um, and engage that circuitry. Now, you, if you then experience that. It's experienced as being quite unpleasant as anybody who's ever been anxious, which is everyone can recognize. And
1: sometimes ang- a little anxiety is a good thing too.
0: That's right. There is the whole, there's what's called the Yerkes-Dodson law. We're getting all kinds of great stuff to bring up a cocktail party. The Yerkes-Dodson <laughs> law, that's the law that is like the inverted U curve so that it, it defines, and you can put anxiety there. There's a certain peak level of anxiety which your performance is the best Uh Um, but if you get more anxious than that then your performance deteriorates Uh and but if you're not anxious at all if you're too laid back then you're not going to perform your best either yeah and an interesting thing is that the more you practice something the higher you can push up that anxiety function and still be performing better huh so that's why world-class musicians uh, world-class athletes will often turn in their best performances under situations where they are performing in front of thousands or millions mm. of people because they uh, can Need push it to almost. that level. Yeah, yeah. They can get there and without a deterioration in performance. Uh-huh. Others, like me, if I'm asked to like, play a bass solo, I fall apart uh-huh. immediately. Because, <laughs> in, oh, front the of, on. in front of it's your like, family? Oh my God, <laughs> <front of> <laughs> just, just the words. Uh, it makes me, makes me scared. So some of the people resort to alcohol or drugs uh-huh. in order to get out of that bad feeling Uh and so the question well how can we then treat that more advanced forms of psychotherapy you know we try to get it well what are the roots of that problem right they go back to earlier trauma that one has experienced Uh etc there are also behavioral ways to try to get past that to desensitize people to the anxiety-provoking stimuli, right, uh, and and find other behaviors that aren't using alcohol or drugs that can be substituted. Like uh, running for me, I well, run every morning for yeah. that reason. There you yeah. go, and you feel good.
1: Oh yeah, nice it running. moderates my anxiety. Uh, so. It has a lot of other beneficial. Yeah, I facts. think. Yeah, I get my best ideas when I run. So oh,
0: well, there you go. Yeah. it's good for your brain. That's, That's right. right.
1: <laughs> That's what I hear. Yeah. Am I right? And, it's
0: yeah. I mean, all the work we've been doing trying to understand what are the positive things you can do for your brain. Among those positive things you can do for your brain, uh, physical exercise is certainly one of the best. Even
1: brisk walking, I'm assuming, right? Even brisk walking. I think that says a lot. You've explained getting to the root cause is critical of what might cause you to lead you to poor behaviors and then replacing it with healthier
0: behaviors. One thing I didn't mention which just comes to mind is, um, you know, when you're talking about the problematic use of mobile phones. Yes. Which is, you know, a project I'd love to work on here on our campus.
1: Oh, me too. Um, There's yeah. no question that we're going to see a social well-being, poor social well-being epidemic.
0: And this is also like a an evolutionary throwback because before we developed all this frontal lobes, it was certainly wise to go for the bird in the hand. I mean, right. And... In, in, ancient times, if you let go of the bird in the hand, you're not going to get the bird in the bush. So immediate gratification is built into our brains. It's really baked in. It's only through having this extra cortex that we're able to delay gratification over longer periods of time um, and make more rational choices. When we do plot out these so-called discounting functions to see, you know, how much is a reward now valued relative to a reward you could get at some later point in time, we discount the stuff that's further away in the future. So from investments, imagine I give you this alternative. I'll give you a $100 now, or I'll give you $200 in six months. Which would you take? Well,
1: I would take the 200
0: You see, now you've got very strong frontal <laughs> well, But And I don't
1: need the $100 now,
0: that's, right? That's
1: right. You see, see if there. I needed it, maybe I would take it.
0: You see, now you've engaged in a very rational process that illustrates the power of your frontal lobe. Right. Um, however, that exact example is just about at the average place where people think it's about the same.
1: Uh, however, uh-huh. in reality,
0: nobody has an option to double your money you know, every six, six months. months. Yeah. You know, But that's that's about the steepness of the typical human delayed discounting curve. Uh, so we often make choices. That's one of the reasons cigarette smoking persisted for so long. It's well, you get the immediate reward most people knew that, yeah, you got a risk of cancer or in amphysema. 10 or 20 or 30 years.
1: Yeah,
0: um, But people didn't think about, well, that's in 10 or 20 or 30 years. And it's only a partial risk. You know, It's right. not a sure thing. So in the face of those probabilities, people continue to do the thing that provided the immediate gratification. So huh. it's a matter of connecting up the immediate actions with the longer-term values and rewards that I think is the key to overcoming a lot of these problems.
1: That's right. Or doing the opposite, where you can have the rewards in the primitive and the more cognitive Mm -hmm. areas. So, you know, using the... I keep going back to music. Playing music can satisfy everything. That's
0: right. Yeah, it can light up the whole system. Yeah. That's right. From Uh, brainstem up to... the Exactly.
1: And so, you know, just getting back to your time here, you know, you've been here at the UCLA Semmel Institute for 16 years but before that you've uh, had a distinguished career in researching mental illness at Columbia, Albert Einstein, Hillside Hospital and Nathan Klein Institute. Now how did these previous roles prepare you for your role at Semel Institute, the leader of Mindwell Pod and researcher of creative minds?
0: Well, I've been super super lucky and in that those earlier experiences, I was able to do a lot of different things. I mean, I'm trained as a neuropsychologist, so typically neuropsychologists get into how to measure behavior to understand how the brain is functioning. But then, in our research, we back to the time of my dissertation, I started getting into neuroimaging. So at that time, we had we didn't have MRIs, mm. we had CAT scans. Uh-huh. I used to trace the size of different brain bits oh. on the scans directly. Oh which my is goodness. Really difficult because yeah. the little measuring thing would skip. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was not fun. You had to do it again and again and again now. And you got computers you can do all that yeah. very automatically pretty yeah. much. So I learned to do brain imaging, brain imaging brain structure and then imaging of brain function subsequently when the functional MRI came along I was able to get involved in doing that. I was lucky enough to be involved in a center where we did also what we call neurophysiology, basically gathering brain waves and studying the electrical activity of the brain. So that's a, you know, another discipline called neurophysiology. And then I was able to start looking at uh, genetics as well, because uh, over the last 20 years, we've developed these tools that let us you know, look at the human genome in amazing ways. When we started, we sort of picked off certain candidate genetic markers that we thought would be useful. And then we realized, well, gee, that's not as informative as looking at all 3 billion base pairs, but that was prohibitively expensive. But mm-hmm. now we can do that in and probably it will be done soon in every human, mm-hmm. um, whole genome sequencing, as it's called. And it is going to happen that we're going to be able to connect the genetic risks all the way up through the proteins and the cells and the functioning of the brain to the expression of human behavior and see how everything is connected together. One of our NIMH directors referred to it as the genetics is providing the edge pieces to the puzzle Mm. of the human mind. So, you know, it's become sort of a scientifically tractable problem to figure out how all of this biology works Uh to produce this incredibly complicated human experience. So I've been lucky to be involved in a lot of different aspects of that. So I probably don't know anything in much depth, but a lot of breadth um, I had the opportunity to do. And then after coming to UCLA, I've increasingly been thinking, well, what could I do that would be really good uh, for people? Um, I had been studying schizophrenia for a long time, and I had a very sobering experience once giving a talk to a group of people uh, families of people with schizophrenia. And a person says, of all the things you've done, Dr. Builder, you've published, you know, hundreds of papers and given, you know, hundreds of talks. What do you think has been of greatest benefit to the people, to people who have schizophrenia? And as I searched the things I've done, I really felt, you know, not much. You know, most of the work that I've done... It was really related to more basic scientific issues, which may have a payoff in the very long term, Mm. but it didn't have as much immediate impact. Mm -hmm. And so I really started thinking, well, what would be, just as we've been talking about how to line up your high-level values with your immediate actions, what could I do that would actually help people now? And that's where it was so great to have Jane Semmel as the key benefactor of our Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior. And as you know, she changed the title of it from the Neuropsychiatric Institute to the Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior, specifically to help bridge the gap between yeah. those people who are identified as having mental illnesses and the rest of us, which I, I don't identify as being different from the people who have mental that's illness. That's right. So I've always been interested in seeing how can we overcome the stigma that's associated with mental illness? Yeah. How can we identify those things where we are all the same? We're really sharing these dimensions of well-being and not well-being,
1: right? Um, I mean, you've always told me it's like a it's just sort of a spectrum, or it's a you know, and a, you can move in over, around it in terms of the definitions of well-being and emotional health and challenges, or whatever. Exactly. I mean, what you were talking when you do your studies on creativity. I know people also do studies on creativity with people with schizophrenia, mm-hmm. right? I would love to know what is, like, what have you found in terms of, like, who ha- who are these creative people and what have you learned that distinguishes people that are creative? Because yeah, so this is sort of a po- the positive side mm-hmm. of emotional well-being because a lot of people who are considered... Diagnosed with mental illness are actually among the most creative.
0: It is certainly true, but I think that there's a sort of popular misconception that that's a good thing about mental illness. Right. And I think that what most of the research is pointing to now is that yes, there are certain things about pushing oneself to the edge of certain dimensions that help creativity. But we developed an idea which we refer to as a, the edge of chaos. It's actually a Model that comes from systems theory, and it can be used to talk about the origins of life, economic systems and all kinds of complex systems. But what we think is probably the case in humans for creativity is that there's a certain envelope that you can push to the novel. If you go too far, it's not going to connect to the rest of the world, and it's not going to be perceived as being creative. Uh-huh. So there's novelty up to a point right before it starts just being considered weird by uh-huh. everybody else. And, and what, what does, the what, edge of chaos.
1: What defines weird?
0: Yeah, it's defined by the community, unfortunately. Uh-huh. So that means that something that is considered weird today might be considered perfectly normal tomorrow. Right. Um, yet, um, that is important for the survival of those ideas. They have to somehow make it right. past the current domain, the current culture, in order to be preserved. Mm. So like Herbie Hancock was playing some pretty crazy stuff um, back in his hard bop era, into the funk era, uh-huh. um, but it really more than much other jazz music, it really connected to people in a way that was unique. And so I think that's why some songs, you know, really stuck. It was new, totally new, different from what went before, but connected in certain ways to people that ended up preserving it. Uh-huh. I think the same is true in the creative arts. We've been finding that again here, how lucky is this, we um, received support to study what we call Big C, or exceptionally creative visual artists, uh, exceptionally creative scientists, and then exceptionally creative musicians. And one of the things we found is that in each of those groups, not so much the scientists, since they're a bunch of academics, no. which tends to prune out certain <laughs> problems that people have. Bummer. But, but I know, I know. We need to support more of that. But um, it's interesting that when we look at measures of what we call psychopathology, things that have been referred to as schizotypy, which basically means entertaining really unusual ideas. Well, it's not that big of a surprise to know that the visual artists... And the musicians actually were high on some of those scales. Hmm. They weren't up in the range of people with uh, diagnosable mental illnesses, but they were higher than the typical person. Hmm. So they were more likely to entertain uh, unusual ideas. And what's
1: unusual? What are unusual ideas?
0: Oh, that. Um, uh, other people can read your mind, oh. or that you could uh, put your thoughts into somebody else's mind. Oh. That uh, other things that are going on in the world are actually about you, or they have special meaning. Uh huh. So, you ask a scientist these questions. They go, nah, they say that's not really true. Uh-huh. But you ask a visual artist, you know, we ask our friends Kathy Opie here at UCLA, great photographer, Doug Aitken, another amazing artist uh, here in L.A. Oh, yeah, well, you know, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> they're very open-minded. Uh-huh. And when we look at personality characteristics, that's one thing we find, that openness to new experience is very high in people who have creative temperaments uh-huh. and are high in creative achievement. Huh. We'd also, there's another fun finding that we observed in a group of healthy people that the ones who cr- had more creative achievement tended to also differ on another personality characteristic known as agreeableness. Some people were more agreeable than others. The ones who had higher creative achievement were less agreeable. They're more disagreeable. Huh. And so we think that that's reflecting their tendency to challenge the status quo. Ah. Some people just don't accept things because somebody else said it's true. An agreeable person might say, oh yeah, fine. But the disagreeable person was going, well, I'm not so sure. What's the evidence that Uh supports that? And so I think that provides, um, you know, um, some meat in in creative uh, science and in other other domains.
1: That's a real juxtaposition, open-minded but not uh, agreeable. That's right. It's sort (laughs) of interesting. But that sounds like something that people could adopt if they were trying to build their creativity, they could work on being more open-minded and also challenging perhaps the status quo.
0: That's right. One of my favorite quotes about how to promote creative expression comes from Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, which I love to say because I feel like I. You're can so good it. at it. I, yeah, <laughs> it's the one thing I'm good at is saying it. But, although he lets people call him Mike, so oh, <laughs> that's good for me. But he's the guy who has written literally the books about creativity that are some of the best in the in the world, and he also is the individual who brought to light the idea of flow, that state of effortless productivity uh-huh. and uh-huh. creativity that you know we all see. One of the things he said, if you want to promote creative expression, he says you should surprise someone else every day. Hmm. Um, and he also said you should surprise yourself every day. And I think that this process of seeking surprise is one of the key oh. activities that you could engage in to, you know, promote creative achievement.
1: That's sort of like what you were describing with the music if you got surprised by something at the end. That's right. That was, you know, satisfying or exciting. That's right.
0: That's right, and those uh-huh. people who love jazz. I think that um, whole process of being taken out very far from where you started and then suddenly having it come back to the head uh-huh. or the key melodic line right. or to have it all resolved, that is just you know an amazing thing.
1: That makes you feel good, and also I remember you saying in your lecture about music that there's some relationship to health in terms of impacting people, for instance, in intensive care units or other settings. What do you attribute that to?
0: That's right. I'm not sure. I mean, it's um, sad that there hasn't been more thorough scientific study of these kinds of processes. We know that there is a beneficial effect of music in medical settings. It's not known whether that's mediated pretty much all through relaxing effects or whether there's more to it than that. There also could be more trivial explanations. So, for example, one of the key sources of problems in medical settings is the ICU environment Uh where there's lots of flashing lights and sounds. And ironically, there you have people where they're there to rest, yet they're woken up every four hours in order to have vital signs.
1: Right. You know, how
0: crazy is that? So uh, crazy, yeah. And uh, rather than letting a person yeah. sleep and rest, which would probably have much greater, <laughs> which will be beneficial. another topic of our pod. Yeah. Our pod, <laughs> well, we, we have to do sleep. sleep. Yes, oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know the mechanisms through which the music helps people's health remains unknown. Mm-hmm. Yet one of the things that's interesting from a health perspective is true for music and probably true for other things as well is the sense of being away. When people looked at environmental factors that contribute to well-being, one of the things they found is that the more you can help people feel that they're in a different place, that that may be beneficial, that it Mm. inspires their sense of awe and Mm. uh, provides a feeling of connection to something larger uh, that may be beneficial. I think music can have that impact. People can be immersed in it and be taken away from where they are right now. And have a real sense of being in a unique space.
1: Getting back to creativity, then, is there anyone that inspires you that you would identify as someone that has been creative yes. force well, in your life? I can't, I can't
0: not mention Herbie Hancock. Ah, you're right. You know, every time I listen to those songs, now I'm, you know, I, I sort of focus on the bass lines. Uh-huh. But then when I listen to what he does playing keyboards it's just unbelievable how he ever came up with the ideas to play what he's playing when he's playing it yeah it's just really it gets me every time
1: that's why you wanted to study you would like to image his brain oh yeah so tell me about that the imaging (laughs) of brains what's the difference are you seeing anything among those that you are imaging
0: we have i mean some of the things are interesting but not very surprising so for example Visual artists we see have parts of their brain structure in visual cortical areas that are bigger than other people. Now you could say, oh, well, maybe they decided, I have this part of my brain is bigger, I'll go and become an artist. But uh maybe it's easier for them if they were born that way. But I think it's more likely that they exercised those aspects of their brains to such an extent um, that it grew. Huh. Uh, we know that there's, through what we call experience-dependent plasticity, the capacity for the brain to grow a lot in response to exercise of certain cognitive functions. So we know that doing cognitive exercise can grow these bits of brain, and it was just surprising to me that we would actually see it in these visual areas from people who are visual artists. They didn't mm-hmm. do that much exercise, perhaps. Huh. So that's, that was interesting. But then there's another interesting thing that we see that links together different creative groups, both the artists and the scientists, show a pattern of functional connectivity in their brains that's unique. And there, when we look at the functional connectivity in the brain, it's sort of like looking at those maps of airline routes Hmm. that you see in the the seat back pocket, right? Uh, You you see that little... but, But now, if you look at each airport as a node in a graph, And then every airport is not connected to every other airport. That's right. LAX connects to New York, and then LAX connects to other regional centers in the Southwest. But you don't see flights from LaGuardia to Burbank. Right. right? You don't see everything connected to everything else. That's a more random pattern. Uh Instead, the airline pattern is very efficient in spanning long distances with a few routes and then having lots of local routes to get everybody where they need to go. That's called the global efficiency in the fancy statistical terms. Mm. When we look at those kind of metrics of how do the brain areas connect with each other, because we can map that. When people are at rest in the scanner, we can look at which patterns of brain activity are correlated with each other. Mm. So we can basically say, where are the planes flying in the brain? Mm. Um, and make a map of that kind of a route map of the human brain at work. And... What we see is that these big C creatives are actually showing a pattern that's more random, hmm. with other stuff connected randomly to other stuff. So maybe you can go from LaGuardia to Burbank <laughs> uh, if you're <laughs> a, a big creative C person, creative. <laughs> wow! Uh, and uh, it's been—I huh. uh, I was really impressed that we saw that across two different groups: wow. scientists and artists who huh. couldn't be more different in some ways, yet share this spark of creativity.
1: And again, is it the chicken or the egg? Right. Did, it, did they have it before, or is it something that they built up over time?
0: That's right. This is something that we need to do more research to find out. But, uh, yeah, uh, an amazing finding. And uh, just just published. It's hot off the press.
1: Wow. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's... Uh... Go pick up your copy of Neuropsychologia today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely post <laughs> it on the, as a link. We'll, yeah, All I, I think we, we have to. I mean, this yeah. is really... I think your description of the circuits in the brain and comparing it to the map of a airline is very understandable oh, for cool. people like me and my brain. Oh. <laughs> oh, very helpful. Well,
0: you have an amazing brain, as you've already proven. I hope proven. so.
1: It's I haven't true. been recruited for the big <laughs> C, though. That's going to oh. be something I'll have to aspire oh, to. Can yeah. you explain what big C creativity is?
0: Yeah, so when people talked about creativity... They sometimes talk about everyday creativity or little c creativity as distinct from creative genius, transformative creativity, or big C creativity, creativity with a capital C. So that's been called big C creativity. And a lot of studies looking at creative achievement will grab what I refer to sometimes as free range humans, not selected for creativity, and study a bunch of them. And you can rank them in terms of their creative achievements. Like in visual arts, I once painted something when I was in high school that I hope no one will ever see. Um, but that was my greatest artistic achievement. In the and I wonder arts. Where, and what your that gives me a one or a two <laughs> on the scale that goes up to seven. <laughs> achievement. But our artists that we recruited for the yeah. Big C project had multiple international exhibitions, and so they're um, in a whole other stratosphere. of artistic achievement, but the typical person doesn't get above a three. So the big C individuals are those who've made clearly landmark achievements within their respective domains. And people always wonder, um, when we do studies of little c creativity and find dimensions that are associated with creative achievement, well, what about the big C creativities? Uh How does that explain Picasso and Mozart? In the big C creativity studies, we try to go out and find those people who are you know, one day going to be seen as the Picassos and Mozarts of our era. And do you see a difference in
1: their brains, the little C and the big C?
0: Um, Well, there we haven't compared enough of little Cs who could be matched on creative achievement to the big Cs. It's sort of a definitional problem. Yeah. So that, that, that study is hard to do. What we've done is compared our big Cs to what we call smart control group. So one of the first things we realized when studying big C creativity is that we would face scientific criticism because people would say, oh, those big C creatives are just smarter than everybody else. They just have uh higher IQs, etc. So especially when we're looking at big C scientists. Uh They all got doctoral degrees. Right. Some of them several doctoral degrees. Sure. Uh, So they're hyper-educated. And even our visual artists were quite uh, educated, and uh, very intelligent. Uh-huh. So if we just studied an average group of people, right. then people would say, well, but they differ in all these other yeah. properties. So we found a smart control group of people who were very high in intellectual ability, in fact, not significantly different from our big C groups in estimated IQ. So in that way, uh, we looked at really smart people, and the differences I talked about, this more random pattern of connection oh, uh-huh. seems to be a big difference. And it also looks like in that paper that's in Neuropsychologia, what we found is that the big C people didn't need to work their brains as hard to get the same results in tasks that required divergent thinking. Huh. Like if I ask you to say, what are the unusual things that you could do with this water bottle? and uh, then you might think, well, I could use it to water the plants. But, well, that's not a very unusual idea, right? But what if you said I could use it to uh, practice my balance? I could put it on my head Uh and practice walking with it as a posture. Now, that's a little bit more creative, right? We have tasks like this where we ask people to produce as many unusual uses of things (laughs) as they can. But it turns out that our big C people didn't have to exercise their brains as much. They didn't show as much activation as the smart controls did when performing that kind of task. They got about the same amount of stuff, uh, same amount of uh, production in that task, but they didn't have to work as hard. Wow. Yeah.
1: Because they were so probably revved up, I think
0: I think that maybe they're used to doing that sort of thing.
1: Uh-huh. That um, too, but maybe the connections too.
0: Well, it could be that Going it's... Going
1: from LaGuardia to...
0: That's right, going from LaGuardia to Burbank. Burbank. That maybe that's uh, easy, yeah. it's easier for them to make those remote connections.
1: Right, yeah. I'd like to end this wonderful conversation with one question, especially since it's been mostly about music. I'd love to know who your favorite artist might be and uh, what's your favorite playlist that will make you feel nostalgic.
0: I'm really tied to this whole 1970s, sophisto-funk era. So Herbie Hancock is front and center in that group. I also find it to be very transporting. John McLaughlin was playing what they said is his last concert. And they're playing the music of Mahavishnu Orchestra, which I heard in 1972 in Keene, New Hampshire, when I was a high school student yeah, we escaped from the school and <laughs> I went up to King. You mean you
1: played hooky? I played
0: hooky, oh, that's wow. right. Well, it was During night, the day? It was, I think it was against the rules. Oh, it was, a boarding, to, it was a boarding school. a boarding school. I think we weren't supposed to leave camp. Oh. And I went with my buddies up to see John McLaughlin in the Mahavishnu Orchestra. And, yes, yeah, really quite... So goodness. you're
1: quite creative because you pushed the envelope there. Oh, <laughs> well, we did push <laughs> the
0: envelope a little bit there. So go for um, it. It's yeah, quite an incredible um, a musician. I mean, not only is the you know, legendary guitarist and guitar virtuoso, some people say without parallel, but the kind of music that he invented was really unique, really playing with novel time signatures, totally unique melodies and harmonies that you know, no one else would think about. I remember Miles Davis commented about John McLaughlin when he Whoa. was playing on one of, one of his albums. He goes, man, that is, that is right off. Oh yeah! <laughs> wow, if you get someone my, yeah, like get Miles. Miles Davis, oh my
1: gosh, commenting. Yeah, yeah. You know and was that. he? Did he meet your expectations even this many years later? Unbelievable! I really? can't imagine because
0: yeah, he's you know what's the word? Not a spring chicken. Uh uh-huh. He must be in his seventy, 70 something, seventy nine or. Yeah. It's yeah.
1: fantastic. And uh, to be able to
0: play, I mean, it's very physically demanding music sure. too. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. He's known. By many just as for the rapidity with which he can play and I just can't imagine how his brain and muscles can still move at that rate with precision but anyhow he's just an incredible guy
1: and how do you feel like physically
0: yeah it's uh well we were talking before about frisson so Uh I had multiple experiences of frisson Uh uh, during the course of that that's like the goosebumps that's right Uh yeah uh, because these melodies are so ingrained In my psyche, Uh you know, over the last 50 years, that to then hear them live and to see John McLaughlin there and to have it resonate with this entire experience of, wow, that was 50 years ago Uh that I heard that same song by that same musician. Live. Live. Yeah, Yeah, which
1: also has such significance. That's
0: right. And with friends who really appreciate that music as well. So
1: so you remembered your friends, too. So that brought some nostalgic memories. I mean, it shows that um, exposing your kids, even maybe even in utero to music, could have this kind of, Imprinting that potentially could bring back these wonderful feelings of of contentment or nostalgia or.
0: Could do, could do, in theory. I like the idea, but I, yeah, so you have to show me the studies that people have done, but the, in, in, uh, yeah, I don't of, know.
1: I, I think it's all theory, you know, like, as you said. Uh, we'll yeah. we'll I do will. the studies. We'll do yeah. some projects. Hey, that's a good idea. Yeah, Okay, this we is what get together
0: between the brain science and, and the pediatrics. Uh, pediatrics. I, I like that a, a lot.
1: <laughs> yes, very positive, too. So, Creative. There you go. Maybe we just flew from LaGuardia to Burbank. That's it. That's it. <laughs> we all created work. a connection with <laughs> our own brains. Fantastic. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Bob. You're amazing. You're such a jewel for our campus and I've learned so much from you over time about breaking down stigma around emotional well-being issues and music just laughing and knowing that you know you can pursue a lot of different areas of science and still be a scientist meet lots of famous people along the way.
0: Well so nice and I'm so honored that you would speak to me about these things and you know you're really a great force for the greater good here on our campus. It's really wonderful. Oh, thank you, Bob. That makes me feel good. part of our Healthy Campus Initiative and leading the way. Uh, right you, on. You always say onwards and upwards. Onwards
1: and upwards. It's a, <laughs> it's a group effort. It takes a university. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you. Bob. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Live Well Today. Today's podcast was brought to you by UCLA's Semel Healthy Campus Initiative Center. For more information on Bob's new study on brain circuits, please visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu livewellpodcast. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, make sure to follow our Twitter and Instagram at livewellpodcast.